0: Welcome to this week's sermon podcast from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. You can find out more about our church at hawkwood.ca. Now, here is Pastor Schaefer Parker with this week's message.
1: Now, let's take our Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 9, and I'll begin in verse 1. This is the text for the fundamental text for today and next Sunday. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now you don't even have to be a Bible scholar to, to realize that this is post-flood. This is after the flood and the earth is empty and God is saying now to Noah and his sons and their wives as, as he said to Adam and Eve at the beginning of, of the world, you need to go out and fr- be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now verse 2, the terror, the fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you, so as I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood, I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am confirming my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you. Birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I confirm my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by the waters of a flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And again, this too is God's word, and may he bless its reading. I'll tell you right at the outset that I prepared a message for today, and as i wrestled with how to preach on the covenant of noah i kept realizing that you know i have to say this before we actually get to the covenant in chapter nine i get this background and this understanding needs to be clarified and so i kept adding things and adding things and by the time i was done i had two sermons so with your forbearance and patience i'm going to preach one of them today just one and uh, and the second one next week so the covenant of noah will take a couple of weeks for us to get through now We don't have to wrestle with the question of whether or not God made a covenant with Adam. There is some debate among the scholars whether or not there is a covenant of, I'm sorry, the covenant with Noah. I should say we don't have to wrestle with the question of whether or not God made a covenant with Noah. There is debate about whether or not God made a covenant with Adam. I'm satisfied that he did. Uh, There's a passage in Hosea that refers to it explicitly, and all the language of covenant except for the word covenant is found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and so forth. And so I believe there is a covenant with, with Adam, but we don't wrestle with the question, did God make a covenant with Noah? Because as you have read in this inspired text that we're looking at this morning, it's the plainest language possible. Before the flood, if you go back to chapter 6, you'll see that God spoke to Noah, and in chapter 6, ver- verse 18, God said, I will establish my covenant with you. And then in today's text, following the flood, God says, I confirm my covenant with you. In both verse 9 and verse 11, we've just read those things. So the question then is not, did God establish a covenant, but is the covenant that God established with Noah relevant for today? That is to say, why should we care about a covenant that God made with Noah some 4,500 years ago? Now I hope to answer that mostly next week. Sorry, <laughs> but for now, I'll only say this, and, and I do want to give you a foretaste of what's coming. I believe that a proper understanding of the covenant that God established with Noah, combined with faith in it, isn't that the way all of God's promises work? If we don't believe, they don't help us, do they? So we need to believe that God established a covenant with Noah. We need to believe that that covenant with Noah in some way, and I'll hope, I hope to explain this in some detail to you next Sunday, applies even to our day. Nevertheless, if we believe that the covenant stands, if we have faith in that covenant, it will bring about for us a deep-seated peace and hope. It really will. It'll change the way you look at life. It will bring to you, I believe, a peace that you cannot know any other way, at least in relationship to certain specific matters in life. So furthermore, then, it should help you to come to a fundamental understanding of God's purpose for your life. That is, you understand the covenant, you'll understand God's purpose for your life. Uh, Let me be clear, I don't mean that it'll help you to know how to choose a career. It won't help you to know whom to choose for a life partner, a wife, or a husband. But Rather, understanding God's covenant with Noah, in which all of us were included, and we are included in that covenant. It'll help you to understand your purpose on the planet As a human being, that's what it'll help you to do, your purpose as a a human being or a person. But before we get into all that, I have to say a word word or two about the flood itself. This is where the introduction kept getting longer and longer, because we have to talk about the flood. Now, it's not my purpose this morning to try to prove the science of a worldwide flood, although I believe that can be done. Nevertheless, I assure you that a worldwide flood is what... The Bible teaches. A worldwide flood is what the Bible teaches. Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, the apostles. And speaking of the Old Testament, just think about Isaiah 54 that Brother Philip read to us just a short while ago. Right through the Bible, with one voice, every division, division of God's word affirms the reality and the significance of the worldwide flood. So let's just pause and ask ourselves, thinking of that statement, what is the significance of the worldwide flood? Well, for one thing, the covenant with Noah cannot be separated from the events that made it necessary. We've read chapter 9. God establishes this covenant. There's more to it. We didn't go deeper into the chapter, and there's some things added there. We'll get to that, to that next week. But remember, the covenant with Noah cannot be separated From the events that made this covenant necessary. In other words, the covenant with Noah makes no sense unless it is based upon a worldwide flood that actually destroyed all life outside the ark. So I I want to take a moment then to be sure that we all agree on what the Bible actually teaches. And I want you to hear that phrase and understand it for its full significance. I am proclaiming this morning, as God gives me strength, as as he gives me understanding, I'm doing the best I possibly can to proclaim to you what the Bible teaches. Now, the challenge, of course, is to believe it. But I'm just simply proclaiming what the Bible teaches. So I want us to be sure, then, that we all agree on what the Bible actually teaches about the flood. And the first thing is, notice the universal nature of God's confession and his promise at the end of chapter 8. You've got your Bible open or your tablet or something is turned on and open to chapter 9. It should be easy just to drop back one chapter. So here is God's confession that he caused universal destruction upon the earth. Genesis 8 starting in verse 20. And we read there, "...then Noah built an altar to the Lord." he took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Now you understand, it's not that God has a thing about smoke. What God loves is our praise and our worship ascending up to him. And in the New Testament, in a number of places, our prayers and our praise are referred to as a, a sweet scent in God's nostrils. It's our worship and our praise that God loves to receive. And that's what he's getting from Noah. It's not the smoke, it's the heart. And so he noticed then, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. And then notice this last sentence in verse uh, 21. And I will never again strike down every living thing as i have done as i have done now either this last statement refers to a universal worldwide flood or else it makes god a liar and you may ask yourself how is that how does you know how does the rejection of the universal worldwide flood how does how does it how does the rejection of that make god a liar well let's let's talk about that for a moment If I understand it correctly, and my logic may be off, but let me just offer it to you for what it's worth, I think there are three possibilities regarding the flood. Either there was no flood at all, that Genesis 1 through 11 is a total myth. That's the world's point of view. No particular flood, no flood that wiped out all the earth where where there was a a boat and, and eight people were saved and all the animals that now live on the earth were saved in that boat. The unbelieving world just rejects Genesis 1 through 11 as myth and fable, and they believe instead uh, in evolution and a, a number of other things. And they, may, and they do, I mean, they, they, have, they have been forced to recognize that the idea of a worldwide flood is a kind of a, a universal myth that's found in the most primitive tribes at the extremities of Earth's existence in the jungle and in the Arctic and wherever you find people living at the extremities, and you find that they believe that there was once a worldwide flood. And they have many, in their story, there are a lot of similarities to what we have in the Bible and uh, in those various stories. And so they can't reject that, so then they come up with the idea of possibly there were local floods And in people's memories, they were exaggerated to being universal floods. So that's the second option, that there was a local flood with the possibility that all humans then living were maybe living in one little remote part or one little uh, uh, tiny part of the earth, and that they were all killed, except for Noah and and his sons and so forth, his wife and their wives. Uh, So a local flood with the possibility that all humans then living had died. Now, that's the position of a man named Hugh Ross, who has spent his lifetime attempting to somehow or another, reconcile the Bible to modern science. That's exactly backward, you understand. God's Word is inspired. God's Word is true. It's science's uh, responsibility to reconcile itself with God's Word. It's not our responsibility to reconcile reconcile the Bible with science, And, and Hugh Ross has gotten it backward. So he believes in the possibility of a local flood somewhere in Mesopotamia, somewhere in the valley of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers and so forth, and and he holds out the possibility, though not the certainty, and he still calls himself a Bible-believing Christian, the possibility, but not the certainty, that all humans then living died in this local flood. The third possibility is that there was, in fact, a universal worldwide flood in which all non-aquatic life outside the ark perished. That's the three possibilities that I'm aware of. Now, I've already spoken about these things a little bit, but let's just say this. We really don't even need to dignify the first position with a discussion, but, but here's the problem with position number two, because, and the reason I do discuss this one is a lot of Christians have adopted this point of view, that it was a, a, a big flood, that it wiped out maybe all the living human beings who were still sort of concentrated in one part of the earth, and, uh, except for Noah and, and, and his family, but Here's the problem. Since God spoke the words recorded in chapter 8 verse 21. Now we've already read those words to you, but remember what he says, I'll never strike never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Since God spoke the words recorded in 821, there have been innumerable local floods. We've had some right here in Calgary. And many of those local floods have been horribly destructive. Comparatively, ours was nothing. But there have been, in our lifetimes, floods where thousands and even tens of thousands of people were wiped out. Uh, Some of these local floods have been horribly destructive. So I say to you that if God did promise to never again allow a local flood, then that promise has been broken too many times to count. But that, of course, is not what God promised. The only thing that makes sense in this context is that God promised to never again destroy the earth with a worldwide flood as he had just done. In my view, there's no escaping the fact that the Bible teaches a worldwide flood in which all life outside the ark, or if you want to get really technical, all non-aquatic life outside the ark perished. Our challenge, and I'll say more about this in a moment, our challenge is simply to believe it. Now, God's confession, then, emphasizes the idea of a worldwide flood, but I want you to notice God's promise as well. Genesis 8.22, you'll see it on the screen. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night will not cease. I suggest to you that this verse by itself eliminates the possibility that Noah's flood was local and only later exaggerated into the concept of a universal flood as Hugh Ross and other modern compromisers would have it. I want you to notice that God did not say, as long as Mesopotamia endures, that area alone will regularly enjoy four seasons per year along with 24-hour circadian oscillations. I mean, day and night, of course. But no, he he made a universal promise to the whole earth, And that universal promise beautifully balances the universal destruction that he had just unleashed. As long as the earth endures. And he means the whole earth. And then, of course, we have the summary of the flood that's found at the, you might say, the climactic point in the flood as it's described for us in Genesis 7. The description of the flood at its height. So let's just turn to Genesis 7:19. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but let's just read there and just see what the flood how the flood is described when it is at its peak. Then the waters surged even higher on the earth. And all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the waters surged above them more than Now, the HCSB translation is an American translation, so they're sticking to the old English measurements, 20 feet, think two stories, think, uh, I think, 7.8 or something, six uh, meters, whatever it turns out to be, but about two stories. So over the highest mountains to a distance of two stories, every creature perished, those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the surface of the ground, from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. As one scholar has put it in reference to this passage, Just suppose for the sake of argument that God had wanted to teach a global flood. Just for the sake of argument that God had wanted to teach a local flood. How could he have said it more clearly than in Genesis 7? And I think he's right. So I'm suggesting then that we can rest assured that the Bible teaches a worldwide flood that eliminated all life outside the ark. And I would add, and now I'm starting to meddle just a little bit, starting to go just, a, just a, 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 I'm putting a toe over the line that I promised I wouldn't go over, so I'm just gonna put this toe over and then pull my foot back as quickly as I can. But listen to me, I would add that the flood also rearranged world geography, geology, biology, and climate to such an extent that the Earth's ancient past cannot be understood without factoring in its comprehensive effects. Without factoring in the flood, we cannot understand the ancient world. Now, earlier I I said that I was not going to try to prove the science behind the worldwide flood, and I I still won't, but I I have this to say. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Paul Withy. Uh, There was a funeral here, and he is the son of the man who's, whose life we were remembering and whose funeral we were, we were celebrating. And, and um, Dr. Paul Withey was here. He's currently professor of astrophysics at the University of Houston. And uh, he told me in our conversation that he had previously spent 20 years on a team with other scientists who were working for NASA, and they were specifically tasked with studying the origin of the solar system. How did we get the sun surrounded by these particular planets? And so forth and so on. The origin of the solar system. This was essential, I think, in their view to understanding the movement of the planets and so forth as uh, NASA develops all of the, the programming and all that's necessary to send satellites and so forth out through uh, space. So he was tasked with studying the origin of our solar system, and this is a quote. I, I got him to repeat it to me on two different days because I want to make sure I heard him properly. In all that time, he said, nothing I learned has forced me to reject a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis. And he still believes in a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis. And he's as, about as high as you can go in the kind of science that deals with these issues. Now, that's the background. I just want you to understand that I am utterly convinced that the Bible teaches a universal worldwide flood that... That transformed everything about everything we know and see on the earth. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, having based, having said that, then what can we say spiritually? What can we base, what, what spiritual truth can we base on uh, this flood? So let me talk to you first then about the meaning of the flood under two headings. We'll talk first about the meaning of the flood and then the meaning of Noah, and then we'll be done today. First, the message of the flood is judgment. Genesis 6 tells us that because of man's thoroughgoing wickedness, God was grieved to the point of regretting he had even made the human race. And so speaking in the first person, and I'm here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, God said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind which or whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. And this was in judgment because of man's wickedness. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that a study of the biblical covenants would test your faith like nothing else. And when I said that, the flood was, in fact, one of the issues that I had in mind. I think just in modern times to believe in that worldwide flood tests our faith. But I was also thinking of the spiritual challenge that is contained in the covenants. So let me ask you to ask yourself a question. Do you agree that at the time of the flood, God had a perfect right to judge his creation and punish it in any way he saw fit? Do you agree that at the time of the flood, God had a right to judge and punish? In other words, does God have the right to both define sin, or we might even say define right and wrong, and set the penalties for sin? Does God have the right to do this? That's the question I'm asking you to ask yourself. Do I believe that God has a right to do these things? Now, before you answer yourself, you need to think very carefully. And I'll tell you why. Because rejection of God's right to judge has become the hallmark of the times in which we live. In fact, the surveys all show (laughs) that among Christians professed Christians, of course, among professed Christians all over North America, the key verse for their life has not become John 3.16, but Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, to just simply turn judge not into a universal uh, motto is, in fact, a, a misapplication, a misunderstanding of that scripture, and we'll get to that some other time, but you understand that this anti-judgment spirit has not just seeped into the church, it has flooded the churches of our times. And so I say to you again, rejection of God's right to judge is a hallmark of our time, and the spirit of our age too often affects believers and non-believers alike. So as you think about this challenge, do I believe that God has a right to judge and punish? As you think about this challenge, Keep this in mind. If you reject the idea of judgment, you are rejecting God's right to be God. And while you're thinking about that, you need to consider this as well. If God is not allowed to be a God of judgment, then he cannot be the God of grace and mercy either. You see, a God who must love cannot love. Let me put it to you this way. There's a vending machine, and it's full of all kinds of treats and snacks and candies and whatnot, and there's a price on the side of the vending machine, and I don't even know what it is these days, but let's say it's a toonie. It's probably a toonie, and believe me, the moment they turn the five-dollar bill into a quinty or whatever they're going to call it, uh, (laughs) they'll immediately demand five dollars for these little 50-cent snacks that they put in these machines, but you've got a uh, You've got a a vending machine that's full of all these snacks and you've got the the necessary toonie and you put in the toonie and you punch the right number for the snack you want and the little thing turns and the snack falls down in the slot and you take it out and you begin to eat. You never for a moment think, wasn't it generous of this machine to give me this snack? Of course you don't. You paid for it and the machine only did what it was designed to do. If God is just a machine designed to turn out love and mercy, then it never can be love and mercy. In other words, in order to be generous, we have to have the right not to be generous. In order to be loving, we have to have the right not to be loving. And so I say to you again, if God is not allowed to be a God of judgment, then he cannot be the God of mercy and grace either. A God who must love, cannot love. Now, we love to sing that God has the whole world in his hands. You know the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. You know it. All right. And the thought that God has, you know, the tiny little baby in his hands. He's got the tiny little baby. He's got you and me, brother, you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got, we love this kind of thing. But I looked it up just to be sure I was right. The fact is, the same song also includes a verse that says he's got the gambling man in his hands. He's got the lying man in his hands. He's got the sinning man in his hands. In fact, a couple of them got right down in the muck and said he's got the crap-shooting man right in his hands. Dice and so forth. Here's the question, and pardon me for getting the grammar wrong. What do you think he has them in his hands for? I mean, this gambling man, this lying man, this sinning man, this, you know, what do you think he's got them in his hands for? You see, both aspects of God's nature are true. Love and judgment, or justice, is is probably the right word there as well. And God is to be praised for both. More to the point, God's judgment is to be feared so that his mercy will be sought. God's judgment is to be feared, so that his mercy will be sought. Dear friends, the first message of the flood then is that God is a God of judgment, and we ignore this fact to our eternal peril. For he who judged the earth and destroyed it 4,500 years ago speaks of another time yet future when the earth will be destroyed by fire, and all of our works will be disclosed. I'm thinking specifically of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. But it strikes me then that if we reject the legitimacy and reality of worldwide judgment in Noah's day, we are perilously close to doubting the coming judgment. And I have to ask, is that really a bet you want to make? That there is no coming judgment? Nothing to get ready for? No judgment to be feared, no mercy to be sought now, while yet we may. So that's the meaning of the flood. The meaning of the flood is judgment, but the meaning of Noah is grace and favor. In chapter 6, verse 8, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Noah was a man of faith who walked in obedience with God, and this is affirmed both in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, as well as in the New Testament, Hebrews eleven seven, And because Noah found favor with God, he saved his family, and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Look at Hebrews eleven 7. You'll see it on the screen. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen. In other words, the flood was coming, and it was not yet seen, and yet... Noah was warned that it was coming. He was motivated by godly fear. Why do I talk to you about judgment this morning? Because it is appropriate to be motivated by godly fear, a judgment to shun or to to fear and to, to shun with every ounce of our being if we can get away from that judgment by finding grace and favor in Christ and through faith in him, finding forgiveness of sin and salvation through faith in him. And so by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So the message of Noah and the flood still speaks to us today. That is, when God told Noah how to build the ark, he made sure to instruct Noah to put a door in the side of the ark. Chapter 6, verse 16, if you want to read it for yourself. And then when it was time, God told Noah to enter through the door along with his family and all the animals that God had brought together there before the ark. They entered the ark, and when they were all safely in, we're told, and this is Genesis 7, 16, the Lord shut him in. And for that little while, we could safely sing that he had Noah and the ark in his hands. I think we could truly sing that. He had Noah and the ark in his hands, and he brought them through this horrific flood. The Lord shut him in. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of another door of safety. He's referring to himself. John chapter 10, I assure you, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You see, if the ark went through the judgment that God poured out on the earth and survived, what we need to know is that when we are covered in Christ, That is, his blood has washed us clean. His righteousness clothes us and makes us acceptable in the sight of God the Father. When we are in Christ, he is like an ark of safety. And when we stand before God in that judgment that is yet to come, we will not only survive, we will will be blessed. We will enter into glory. We will be with God forever and ever. Remember, we enter into Jesus Christ by faith. And when we do find, uh, when, when, we do find when we do enter into him, we find that in him, God's justice has been satisfied and his love is poured out upon us and we're safe in him through, the, through all the floods, both of life and death and the future yet to come. So God help us to enter into Christ, the door of safety that is offered to us today. The great tragedy of the world before the flood is that it took it appears it took 150 years to build that ark. And the people of the world, even if they didn't live in the community, they heard about it. And I'm pretty sure there were some people Instagramming all over the world about that with pictures of that flood, of that ark as it was being built. And they saw it take shape. You know, the, the ribs and all the girders and all the, the, the uh, inner structure. And then they saw, of course, the, the whatever, the, the boards that went on the side and the pitch. That was applied to make it strong and, and, and seaworthy and, and so forth. They saw all that. 150 years. Noah's called a preacher of righteousness. 150 years Noah's preaching the gospel, and at the end with the door standing wide open and all kinds of extra space available. You understand the ark was so large that every attempt to examine, you know, knowing what we know about the number of, of uh, creatures on the earth today and 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 the birds and all of that and understanding that they had to be fed during the year that they were on the ark, it appears that it would have taken about a third of the space to house the animals, another third of the space to house all the food and all the other things that would have to be stored on the ark. And that means the ark was a third empty. God was leaving lots of space for other people to get on the ark if they would just believe Noah and join him there. And yet, at the end, it was just him and his family. How foolish not to turn to the Lord Jesus. You say, well, how do I do that? And with this, I'm done. I think the clearest statement ever about receiving Jesus and believing in him is found in Romans chapter 10. If on your lips is the confession, Jesus is Lord. That's the confession. Not Jesus come into my heart, you know, and live in the back closet Till I need you when I die. No. If on your lips is the confession Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And So I'm challenging you now to enter the door of safety by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. Do it right now. Do it as you sit there if you haven't already done so. Make sure That is is the confession of your Lord, of your life, not just a long time ago, but even now. Jesus is Lord. I believe that He has risen from the dead. I believe that all the things implied in that resurrection are true, that He did ascend back to heaven, that He is seated on the throne, and that He is coming again to judge the earth and receive His people unto Himself. God help us to live by faith and to let these covenants challenge our faith. But with God's help, may we rise to the challenge every time.
0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. We want to be a blessing to our community, so please contact us with any questions or prayer requests that you have by calling the church at 403 239 6200 or through our website at www.hawkwood.ca You can find us on Facebook by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church. We are on Twitter at Hawkwood Baptist. The sermon podcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. May God bless you this week.